Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My name is uh, Jonathan Haidt. I'm a, a social psychologist and a professor at New York University Stern School of Business. Um, and uh, the mythologist Joseph Campbell once said, figure out what mythological character you are. And for me, I would be the explorer, uh, not the king. I don't want uh, power. I want to just go everywhere, see everything, learn everything. Welcome to Spokes. In this episode, I speak to Jonathan Haidt, an American social psychologist. He's the author of The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind, and a co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. The Righteous Mind and The Coddling of the American Mind were both New York Times bestsellers. His four TED Talks have been viewed over six million times. He uses his research to help people understand and respect the moral motives of those with whom they disagree. He is a co-founder of the American-based international organization, the Heterodox Academy. In this conversation, we talk about the search for the truth, groupthink, humility, openness, religion, orthodoxy, and more. I begin by asking him, what is the Heterodox Academy? The Heterodox Academy began as a couple of uh, professors who each had written papers about the decline or loss of viewpoint diversity in their fields. Um, so I had given a talk in 2011 looking at the decline of political diversity in social psychology. Um, I was always on the left. Uh, you know, as look, most professors and artists are on the left. Most, uh, you know, most uh, 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 business people, people who are attracted to the military are on the right. There are personality reasons why occupations lean left or right. That's not a problem. Um, but in the academy, in, in intellectual work, you have to have the certainty that your ideas will be critiqued. So you need people to come with different prior commitments. And so I began noticing um, a weakening of that process in, in, uh, in my field in social psychology. And I gave a talk in 2011, and a few other psychologists came to me afterwards and said, yeah, we agree. We wrote it up as a paper. It came out in 2015. Uh, called something like How Political Diversity Will, Inc- Will Improve Social Psychological Science. 
as it was coming out, a professor named Nick Rosencrantz had written a similar paper about law, where almost all the faculty are on the left. And, um, uh, and a graduate student in sociology, Chris Martin, had written a similar paper in sociology uh, about the, the same issue there. And so the three of us uh, talked and we said, hey, you know, we should like get together. We should like, keep attention on this issue. And it was not a political project. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of center left. Nick is, is, is on the right. And Chris Martin is sort of center, center left, I think. Um, it, was, it was about the quality of science, quality of research. And you talked there about viewpoint diversity, but um, I, I know I'm going to be a little bit provocative here in, in that. I, I just want to ask, is there not a right way to think? Is there not a right way to think about life and to have views on certain things? Oh, I see. Well, I suppose one could say there is a right way to think at a kind of a meta level, which is um, I might be able to say that the right way to think is to recognize these severe limits on our ability to find the truth and these severe biases that lead us to confirm what we already believe. And so a right way to think is to be intellectually humble and to ask other people to help you get smarter by critiquing your ideas. So yes, I am willing to say that there is a right way to think at a kind of a meta level. Um, but as for a right way to think about substantive issues in our world, yeah, on some things, things are decided, but you really can't know that. Even if even if everyone says it's decided, well, it turns out a lot of things get reopened. We really, it's, it's just very hard to know the truth. And we need a good process. We need friends. We need good faith critics uh, to really be sure that, uh, uh, to be sure that we've, we've got the best uh, arguments and evidence. So you're saying then that viewpoint diversity is something that helps us to get closer to the truth or to look at, you know, multiple ways of looking at different topics, I suppose. Exactly. It's not a good in and of itself. It's not as though my goal is, oh, let's just have lots of viewpoint diversity everywhere and then we'll be done. Um, my goal or our goal at Heterodox Academy is very focused on the academy, on universities. Um, so I'm not saying that every group of people needs viewpoint diversity. If your goal is cohesion, you know, if you're a, a unit, you know, a unit of, of Marines storming a beach, uh, you know, you don't necessarily would you, you may not value. It may not be useful to have political or, or intellectual diversity. You'd want diversity of skills, certainly. Um, but there are certain parts of our society whose telos or, or, or purpose or goal is to find truth. So, a jury, for example, um, you would you, we deliberately would, you know we wouldn't want everyone on the jury to be the same same gender or same race. We want diversity of perspectives, uh, which gets you closer to the truth in a difficult matter of fact. Um, if you're in the United States, it's called the Defense Intelligence Agency. There's like a, a sort of a CIA for the military. Or if you're the CIA or the FBI, um, you darn well better have viewpoint diversity, otherwise you're going to suffer from groupthink. And our general point is that universities, uh, you know, even more so than elementary schools or, or high schools, universities have a research function and a teaching function. And especially in the research function, um, it is vital that we not have orthodoxy um, or groupthink. And that's the key to understanding our name. It was uh, Nick Rosencrantz picked it. You know, it's a, it's a Greek word, heterodox. It's the opposite of orthodox. And so the best way to understand it is, you know, to have orthodoxy on, on a point, you know, be it about immigration or, or democracy or, uh, you know, civil rights or anything, to have 
um, um, orthodoxy um, means nobody can question things and people are afraid to question things. Um, and uh, uh, now I'm sorry, just to be clear, obviously some things are totally decided like that people should have civil rights, of course, that's not up for debate. But in any substantive question of how do we apply it in this case or that, uh, you do need a healthy, uh, a healthy discussion. You mentioned there the word uh, or the phrase groupthink. Is there a danger in, in groupthink? Uh, certainly there is. Um, so the uh, one way that I like to teach social psychology to my students is to say, okay, imagine that people are perfectly rational information processors. All we care about is the truth and we, we, we weigh evidence evenly and all that. Okay, take that as your starting hypothesis. Um, every that is such a bad picture of human nature and almost everything in this course is on how we're not that. Um, we are extremely concerned with what people think of us. We use our reasoning frantically to justify what we've said. Uh, we're more afraid of, of being ostracized than we are of being wrong. So we use our, there's a wonderful paper and book by uh, Mercier and Sperber uh, I think it's called the argumentative theory of reasoning, which argues that our amazing reasoning abilities didn't evolve to find the truth. They evolved for me to influence you. Uh, we, we, we're really good at making arguments to influence the other people in our social group to get what we want, to guard our reputation. And once you realize that, you see that it's quite amazing that a group of humans can actually figure anything out. Um, that's, that's complicated. Obviously, technical matters, how to start a fire, people figured that out long ago. Um, but on, on complex social, moral, or political matters, it's amazing that we're actually as good as we are. And uh, I, I think the, the reason that, so the magic that happens in a university when it works well, is that you put an idea out and you know that people will look for the evidence that you couldn't find. So since we all suffer from confirmation bias, the cure for confirmation bias is other people. We ask them to have different confirmation bias and to critique us, and then we all get smarter. So you said um, the Heterodox Academy was set up in 2015, I think, yes. is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so since then, uh, what changes have you seen? Like, has it been effective in its aims and goals? Uh, well, we began with just about 15 professors who were studying these issues. And then by 2016, there were a lot of people who wanted to join. We made it a membership sort of thing. Um, we now have about 4,000 members, um, almost all professors, but also administrators, graduate students, um, anyone who's an insider to the academy, anybody who has a real stake in the quality of university life. Um, and this is all set, this all has to be set, in the United States at least, against the backdrop of rapidly rising political polarization. That's been rising since since the late 90s. So left and right hate each other more. It's more and more difficult to talk about politicized issues. Um, so at least in the United States, the general conditions for open civil discourse have been getting worse and worse. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, Donald Trump is a particular, uh, how shall I put it, um, accelerant of conflict. Uh, so the overall conditions have been getting worse and worse. At the same time, Twitter and, and social media uh, since 2012 or so, have really become an outrage machine. That also has made it much, much worse. So you have to look at it against that backdrop. Uh, uh, so I'm, I can't quite say that the conditions for open civil discourse are better now than they were when we started. But ideas about the value of viewpoint diversity, that people talk about it at all, 
Um, a lot of the tools we've created um, are widely circulated. And let me also say, I've been focusing on the United States because that's where it started. That's where we have the most members. Uh, but we actually have a lot of members in the UK, uh, in uh, uh, Canada. I think I just read that we have, I think, 17 members in Ireland. Um, and uh, um, so it's mostly English-speaking countries because that's who's able to you know, really get access to the materials. But we have members in dozens and dozens of countries. Um, uh, so, yeah, you know, I think we're, we're making progress building up the ideas. These ideas are now widely talked about, not just in the universities, but journalists use, uh, you know, talk about the value of viewpoint. There, there are a few professions that really get it. So journalism, law, um, and, and, and the academy, those are three areas that are predicated on, um, on, on open debate and uh, putting views uh, in, in contest with each other. Um, you mentioned there that you've got some members in Ireland. I think Ireland is like I suppose every country has its own unique story and, and history. But um, Ireland has rapidly changed from being viewed as probably one of the most conservative countries mm -hmm. in Europe to now being one of the most liberal. What kind of things should we or could we be looking out for as that trajectory of change happens? Mm. Um, you know, in general, um, in general, the thing to look out for is the feeling that some people feel they're walking on eggshells or they can't speak up. And so, of course, if if you know if you have a company of engineers that's almost all male and women feel that they'll be ridiculed if they speak up, well, that's terrible, and their voices are are silenced; they don't contribute. Um, if you have, uh, you know, if, you, if, if it's a black-white issue or a Protestant uh, Catholic issue. So you, you want to really know who feels that they can share their ideas and who doesn't. So you, um, we have a, a tool, if you go to Heterox Academy, we have the Campus Expression Survey. Uh, it asks people based on race, gender, and politics, sort of left-right. Um, it asks them uh, how free they would feel to speak up on various issues, and if they're afraid to speak up why. So I would say, you know, I'm not saying that like Ireland needs to be, you know, tolerant of political diversity, but I would think in your universities and, and other places that are focused on truth, yes, I would urge them to survey uh, students uh, and look for, again, you know, race, gender, and politics are sort of the big three. Maybe there's something else in Ireland. Um, because when, when voices are silenced of any kind, we all lose out. We we, we lose a perspective that can challenge the dominant perspective. I looked actually at Ireland to try and kind of get a gauge of do people, I asked my own students, I'm a lecturer myself, and I asked my own students in class, having come across the Heterodox Academy, mm -hmm. did they feel that they could speak openly about certain issues? And uh, we didn't fill out the survey, but generally the feeling was, no, there's some things there's no way they would feel comfortable speaking about in class. And like I what? Can you tell me what those issues were? What were those issues? Uh, well, like the ones you mentioned, race and gender, I think gender mm -hmm. is probably the top one. Um, and I, I think gender in, in, in a few different areas of gender, like the different understandings of gender, you know, sex and gender, I suppose, as well. Um, also abortion. We had a big abortion mm -hmm. referendum in Ireland a few years ago and abortion is now legal. But people who were who didn't support the change felt they couldn't speak about it. Right. So, um. So, and I actually read an article, one of the main universities in Ireland, a university college, Dublin, and there was um, the 
people there felt that it was very left leaning and the people who were conservative didn't feel that they could express their opinions. I also just just your opinion on this. I've seen the word right wing being used a lot as an insult. Mm-hmm. Is that something that happens? Is that a kind of an indication that we're lacking viewpoint diversity, do you think? Well, you know, in a, in a culture war, uh, at least I don't know what you have in Ireland, but, um, you know, we have, we began, we began using the phrase culture war in the early nineties and the hostility that, you know, the thing to look at for political polarization is not polarization of people's beliefs. It's, it's people's hostility to people on the other side. And as that's gone up and up and up, um, then yes, simply calling someone liberal or conservative can feel like uh, like a label, like a criticism. And so calling them, you know, right-wing or reactionary, you know, would certainly be more likely to be intended or perceived as, a, as an insult, just as if you were in a right-leaning group, um, you know, people would describe you as, uh, you know, radical or radical left or Marxist or... So yeah, each, each group has, has derogatory terms for the other side. So... The, the idea of right wing people being bad, <laughs> uh, like, to be honest, the first time I came across the idea about left and right and moral preferences was uh, and, and challenging that idea was in your, an interview that you did with Jordan Peterson, where you talked about openness and about disease and, and our attitudes towards that. So, like, is there another way to think of it, of, of this di- di- division between left and right or liberal conservative? Yeah, gosh, I should get you. There's all kinds of great quotes. So John Stuart Mill is, is you know, the greatest liberal of all time. And by liberal, I, I don't mean left. I mean, as we use the word incorrectly in America, uh, by liberal, I mean exponent of the, the liberal society, one that accords maximum freedom to people to make uh, lives that they of their choosing. Let me just see if I can find some quotes here because he... Uh, Mill has a quote about somewhere about why, uh, let's see if I can find a conservative. Um, he has a quote about why you need uh, conservatives and liberals. Okay, here we are. Yes. Uh, Mill says, uh, and I believe this is from On Liberty. Um, In politics, it is almost a commonplace that a party of order or stability and a party of progress or reform are both necessary elements of a healthy state of political life. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, and, you know, this is the universal. So the left-right dimension, uh, my, my colleague here at NYU, John Jost, has done great work on the psychology of left-right. And it's a, it seems to be a very widespread dimension. Um, it's related to the big five trait of openness to experience. And some people look at something and say, uh, you know, hey, you know, let's, you know, why is that there? Let, let, can we improve it? Can we change it? Can we put something else up? Um, and other people look at things and say, oh, you know, what we've inherited is generally good. Let's be very careful about changing it. And so that's the eternal tension between those who say, you know, forward quickly and those who, uh, in the words of a famous American conservative, um, um, said, uh, uh, we stand athwart history yelling stop. Um, and that, well, actually, Ireland, we should talk about Edmund Burke. So I think Edmund Burke is really the, the, the classic exponent of conservatism as a philosophy. And... Uh, and he said something to the effect of, um, you know, we should operate on society with care as if we were operating on our father, something like that, I think. Uh, so I think that is, to my mind, intellectual conservatism. And, you know, I've always been more on, the, well, I used to be very much on the left, now I'm sort of center left, but, um, you know, we need progress. But if you don't have some voices saying, well, careful, slow down, what do we, you know, don't just change everything then you tend to get reforms that backfire. You tend to get reforms that don't work as planned. So I'm a big fan of uh, sort of cybernetic systems. I see society as a cybernetic system where you have different forces that reach a shifting balance point. Um, one of the things that I came across in your talks as well is is this idea of fragility. But are there ideas that are too dangerous to be expressed? And if there are, what are those ideas or opinions? Well, I mean, I think in a college classroom, there, you know, there are certain topics where if you can't talk about them incredibly sensitively, you probably shouldn't talk about them at all. So I'm not, I'm not a free speech advocate. I mean, that, what I should say is uh, I'm not a free speech extremist. I don't think, hey, everyone should be able to say whatever they want, whatever they want. I think that's, that's absurd. Um, I am trying to improve universities and what kind of environment gives us the best discussions. So, um, you know, if there are, if there are certain topics that, uh, if there are certain topics that are not central to the topic of a class and that would, would be just very difficult to talk about without people being rude or, or careless, 
um, I, you know, I can I can see there being some taboo taboo topics, especially at the undergraduate level. Um, so yeah, again, I'm not you know. My point is let's 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 keep our eye on the goal here, and the goal of a university. Well, there's two. There's the research function. We got to find truth, and then there's the education function. We have to create environments in which our students can learn. So um, yeah, I, I would I think it's fine for there to be to be some some taboos, but you need a general sense that people, if they are acting in good faith, they can question an assumption. Right. Okay. And actually, that's one of the things I do see is the even the shutting down of questioning. You know, that people who raise a question to actually ask a question, if it's done civilly and with respect, mm -hmm. that that then it should pave the way for some kind of a conversation. But I see that there's some topics where even to question results mm -hmm. in in being called names or, mm -hmm. you know, accused of something. And, and I, yeah. I find that really worrying. Yeah, no, that's right. I and mean, I think, you know, uh, um, abortion would play that role. So it has for a long time in the United States. Uh, you know, there's a general in most in many. Well, the country is split, but in progressive institutions, there's a very strong pro uh, pro choice consensus. So, um, yeah, I think that would be an example of one where many people would be afraid, um, uh, you know, would be afraid. I mean, because, you know, I, <clears throat> I've been looking especially at sort of political diversity as one of the main areas that we're losing. Um, but I often hear from from Christian students, even Christian students on the left, uh, who say that um, the problem for them, they, they can't reveal that they're religious, that they would they feel they would be, uh, they would face some sanction or some doubt if they were real, that they were religious Christians. So, uh, you know, there's a whole variety of aspects of identity where people can feel that they, they can't admit who they are. Yeah, actually, when you talk there about religion, you use the word orthodoxy. And I think orthodoxy is a word that I would associate often with with religion, actually. Mm -hmm. So and one of the changes that in Ireland and I'm sorry to be bringing it back to Ireland because I know oh, you're no, probably not let's that go familiar. there. I'd love to uh, be in Ireland right now. <laughs> well, it's really wet and grey and miserable here, actually. But um, is that religion, the, the adherence to religion has changed just so dramatically since when I was a child, mm -hmm. you know, the vast majority of people were very religious. The if you were an atheist, you were the one who was ostracized, whereas now it's kind of gone the other way. So when religion changes like that, there's a kind of a vacuum. Do you think that that plays a role in, in this? in this whole topic of viewpoint diversity and be able to talk about topics? Yeah, it, it might. So there's two ways into that. Um, one, let's start with the sociologist Emile Durkheim, who was writing in France in the late 19th century, early 20th. <clears throat> and in his book, Moral Education, um, he considers, so France is secularizing, they're removing Catholicism from the schools. And he says, you can't just rip out the religion and replace it with nothing. You have to have, I think he said, called it like a spirit of belonging and a spirit of authority. You have to have those two things. Um, and so he thought long and hard about how do you create a functioning institution if you take religion out of it? Because if you don't, you kind of leave a vacuum of both belonging and of authority. And there could be just you know, chaos or, or his word was anomy or normlessness. Uh, so that's, I, th I think he's right about that. That's always a consideration when any institution or country loses a dominant sort of narrative and religion often has provided that. The second piece of this, I believe, is that social media changed radically between 2009 and 2012. Uh, when social media first comes out around 2004, 
with Friendster and MySpace and, and the Facebook. Um, it was not toxic at all. It was just, you know, here's, here are my friends, here are the bands I like. Uh, but in 2009, Facebook adds the like button. Twitter adds the retweet button. They both copy each other's innovations. Now there's a lot more engagement and the platforms algorithmicize your news, your feed, your friend feed. So that, that's also the key years, 2009 to 2011 or 12. Those are the key years when huge numbers of, of teenagers flood onto social media. Most were not really on it every day in 2008, but by 2011 or 12, all over the Western world, and I, I think Asia might even have been ahead of us, um, all over the world, teenagers are now online by 2012. And now the news media, the old line media, is now integrated with Twitter and Facebook, and, and things are happening so fast. My point is that it used to be more possible to have a set of shared meanings within an institution, and to some extent within a country, although there's so much diversity in the country. But after 2012, and especially by 2014, 2015, I think we're in the period after the Tower of Babel has fallen. So if you remember the Tower of Babel story from the Bible, God says, come, let us go down and confound their language so that they may not understand one another. Um, so I think, you know, I don't want to glorify the old days before 2009, but the speed at which ideas and memes and information and readings change is just completely head spinning now. Uh, and so, yes, I think there is what Durkheim called anomie or normlessness, and that leads to a lot of confusion, a lot of need to belong, um, a, a, a lot. And it also pulls out in the younger generation, especially that grew up on it, a need to continually broadcast. They have to be like, they think so much about, well, should I like this post or not? You know, what'll happen to me if I like it, but what'll happen if I don't like it? So it does make it harder to have a conversation when people are thinking so much, not about you that you're, they're talking to, but about all the, the, the social media world that they're immersed in. Yeah, the kind of the idea of the right way to think. I think in, in terms of gender, what I see on both sides, we say of the gender, we have um, Gender Recognition Act, so we have self-identification in Ireland. And I see it, there's a heated debate about that. But in some ways, there's only one view that's a public view. And I think uh, when I look at it and I'm trying to see right, both sides of the debate think they are right. Yeah, that's usually so, the case. Yeah. So that ties in. You're a moral psychologist. So how do we if we're on one side of that that debate and we have an opinion and we think our opinion is the right mm -hmm. opinion, how can we come at it then? Well, so you always have to focus on the institution. What institution are you talking about? So if you're talking about it in the public square or online, then the best way to win would be to shame your address, shame anyone who disagrees, get them fired or punished. That would be a very effective way to win. Um, but if you're in a university or a, or a school of any sort, if your goal is to learn from each other, if your goal is to create an inclusive environment, then you wouldn't want to do that, or you'd want to you'd want to encourage norms of, of civil discourse. Uh, I think that's been increasingly hard to do as social media takes up just more and more of the brain space of people. One concern that I have uh, about, uh, about the last decade is that we have lots of different institutions in civil society, and each one should have norms of its own. So the norms in a hospital the medical norms are very different from the norms of a courthouse or the legal profession, very different from that of, of Wall Street or the financial industry, and very different from that of 
philosophy or psychology or, or some other academic discipline. They're very different. But in the last 10 years, I think walls between fields have come down so that it's sort of the same everywhere. And, and this is the, the, the norms of more of social media. And this can bring us to a call-out culture where people are not trying to understand each other. Some people are looking for ideas that they can shame or tag as being bad, and then they get the credit for that. Um linking in that the idea of different institutions having different norms and the focus really for the heterodox academy is on the academy and on Mm -hmm. colleges and universities but those ideas that begin in the academy don't they filter out into the wider society they certainly do yeah and that's uh there's a lot of discussion about that now in the united states in journalism especially um that a lot of the norms uh, so Heterox Academy was started as a purely faculty issue. It was not about uh, undergrads, um, undergraduates. It was just a faculty research issue. Um, but beginning in 2015, there was a wave of, of, of protests and there were new norms on campus and, and um, uh, you know, things just got a lot more politically intense. Uh, and there was, there was talk about, you know, I mean, safe spaces were not very common, but there was... Um, uh, there was really more of a more of a call out culture and uh, uh, a lot of talk about uh, bias response teams and microaggressions and what are some of the other ones? So trigger warnings. Uh, so it was a whole set of concepts that emerged, and it, it wasn't everywhere. It wasn't on most university campuses, but it was on a lot of them. Um, and it just led to a lot more, a, a much tenser environment with a lot of people calling other others out. And again, social media was crucial here. And at the time, a lot of people said, "Oh, that's just college students being college students." But um, in the United States, in the last couple, two months or so, there's been a real intensification of this uh, in journalism in particular and in a few other areas. And uh, two or three journalists have written to me privately to say, you know, wow, all that this, you know, the stuff that, that you were writing about back in 2015 on college campuses, it's now the same stuff in our newsroom. So, you know, there are generational changes, there are technological changes, there are social changes. And yes, a lot of the a lot of the patterns that start on college campuses, when you know whether it's those very students graduating and taking them out, or whether it's just lateral diffusion of ideas, I, I don't know. Um, but yes, what ideas from college campuses often do filter out into the rest, uh, not the rest of life, but into institutions that hire from those elite college campuses. Um, and one thing I have seen and. Uh is it within the the field we say of critical thinking that students sometimes are be told what to think rather than how to think but the way of how to think is really to open isn't it would you say uh That's yeah and that brings us yeah that brings us back to the the question you asked me at the beginning about the right way to think um so i'll i'll end with one or two quotes from john stuart mill so first let me say if there are any uh, professors in ireland uh watching this or listening to this, please go to heterodoxacademy.org and join. We're an international organization. And secondly, uh, for anyone, especially if you're teaching, uh, do you call it high school or secondary school? What do you call it for age 16, 17? Secondary. Okay. So if you're a secondary school teacher or a college or university professor, um, I urge you to go to heterodoxacademy.org slash mill uh, to get our version of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Um, it's an amazing work of, of, 
of philosophy and, and, and social analysis, chapter two of On Liberty is one of the most insightful things ever written on the importance of, of, of free inquiry, free speech, um, and viewpoint diversity. And uh, so you can get, we have a beautifully illustrated version of chapter two, reduced by 50%, we edited it. Um, Richard Reeves is a, is a Mill scholar, he helped me edit it. Uh, so we have this beautifully illustrated short version it's only 7,000 words, and it has gems such as this. He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good, and no one may have been able to refute them. But if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the opposite side, if he does not so much as know what they are, he has no ground for preferring either opinion. So over and over again, Mill understands the dynamics of thought, speech, and belief. Uh, and he understands the difficulty of finding the truth. And, uh, and this is a perennial problem in, in American politics. You know, it often happens, I think it happened in the, you know, in the UK with the Brexit vote as well, um, that you know, opinion makers uh, cannot even understand why some people might vote against what, you know, the, the, the position that is uh, dominant in more of the elite circles. Uh, and they're surprised, and they don't understand it. And that was the case, certainly, with the, the Donald Trump election and, and with the Brexit vote. So it's crucial, you know, if anyone on the left, if anyone's listening and you're, and you're on the left and, and you're, uh, you're an activist of any sort or you want to bring about social change, um, it's just really, really effective. You become much more effective uh, if you really try to understand your opponents and their reasons. it for this episode of Spokes. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank the Heterodox Academy, especially Corey Clark, Deb Mashek, and of course, the incredible Jonathan Haidt. Spokes is produced by Colette Colfer and Terry Hackett. Like and subscribe and share the video. <laughs> there is no video. <laughs> Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.